0: Thank you for listening to this Encore presentation of Access Utah. Unfortunately, we cannot take your calls right now, but you can still participate in this conversation by emailing us at upraccess@gmail.com. at gmail.com.
1: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In 2015, the number of visitors to Yellowstone exceeded 4 million for the first time. David Quammen, writing in the May 2016 edition of National Geographic magazine, the uh, the current edition of the magazine asks, Can we hope to preserve in the midst of modern America any such remnant of our continent's primordial landscape in any such sample of true wildness? A gloriously inhospitable place full of predators and prey in which nature is still allowed to be red in tooth and claw. Can that sort of place be reconciled with human demands and human convenience? He goes on to say, Time alone and our choices will tell. But if the answer is yes, the answer is Yellowstone. David Quammen is the award-winning National Geographic writer, sole author of this special single-topic 2016 issue on Yellowstone National Park, Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem. Uh, David Quammen has lived in the Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem for uh, some 30 years, and he is author of uh, many books, including uh, such nonfiction uh, bestsellers as The Song of the Dodo, Monster of God, The Reluctant Mr. Darwin, and Spillover. David Quammen, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you, Tom. Very good to be with you.
1: So uh, you begin and end this issue uh, talking about the bear. Uh, yes. Special fa- personal fascination with the bear and, and the health of the bear?
2: Well, definitely that, yes. Personal fascination with the grizzly bear, uh, particularly in the Yellowstone ecosystem. But I also, when I was asked to write this whole issue, um, I had to think about how to structure it. I asked my editors, and they said, you tell us. And I decided that the best way to touch on the maximum uh, number of critical issues facing Yellowstone, and the highest, the highest value, the most magnificent um, uh, fact about Yellowstone was the grizzly bear, a um, viable population of grizzly bears in the heart of the American West. So I put the grizzly bear at the center of the, uh, of the article. And uh, everything sort of radiates outward from there.
1: You begin, in fact, with uh, you know the bear-human conflict, and the ultimate in that, uh, some some deaths, um, not only of uh, of some unfortunate uh, people in the park, but uh, of a particular grizzly bear uh, put down for, I guess, being suspected of killing a human.
2: That's right. I started with with uh, bear-human conflict and a couple of human fatalities that resulted also in in bear fatalities uh, because that is where most vividly push comes to shove in terms of our relationship with the wild our relationship with nature with Yellowstone uh, it's uh, it's an infrequent occurrence it doesn't happen often that a human is attacked, let alone killed by a grizzly bear, but it does occasionally happen usually when a person makes a mistake or and/ or a bear makes a mistake with bad consequences for both so Last summer, for instance, there was a man named Lance Crosby uh, who was working in the park and went for a hike alone, not carrying bear spray, and was um, later found dead and fed upon by a female grizzly and her cubs. And because those cubs, uh, because that female had tasted human flesh and it seemed as though it may have been a predatory event, that bear was put down and the cubs were sent elsewhere. Um, and so uh, it was... Um, it was a starting point that reminds us that it's not easy to live um, with the wild, to say this place shall be wild, and yet it is a public park uh, for the benefit and enjoyment of the people. This whole issue is devoted to the question of how does that work?
1: You say that this is uh, very interesting, very impactful. Most of us, when we visit Yellowstone, see it as if through a plexiglass window. Gaze from our cars, roadside bear. We stand and overlook above great river, etc. We experience the park as a diorama.
2: Right. Yes. It seems that way because uh, you know more than four million people visit Yellowstone Park um, in a year. That was the past that number last year, and um, probably the large majority of those people don't get far from their cars, and that's okay. But it tends to support this illusion. That Yellowstone, as I say, is a diorama. That there's some sort of a, some sort of a, um, a plexiglass wall between us and it. But in fact, as I go on to say, um, there is no plexiglass window, and the diorama is real. If you walk a hundred yards, two hundred yards, from a road in Yellowstone, then you are in a very wild place, with grizzly bears and bison and mountain lions and wolves, and uh, And that's thrilling, and that's a great privilege, but you need to take responsibility. You need to know what's going on. You need to be prepared.
1: You also point out that if you were in a national park in in Africa, you would not be allowed to leave the car.
2: That's right. The great game parks, for instance, of East Africa and South Africa, places like Serengeti National Park and Masai Mara in, in Kenya, um, you ride around and you see the lions and the leopards and the elephants uh, and the uh, and the hippos from a safari van or a Land Rover. You are not invited nor allowed to get out and walk around, let alone go backpacking in the in the back country of those places. Uh, but in in America, we do things differently, and we've decided that people shall continue to have that opportunity, and it's a wonderful opportunity. Um, I know from experience that it's um, that it's thrilling and and a bit scary um, to um, to be in the backcountry of Yellowstone, to sleep back there, to to backpack through those areas um, in the presence of grizzlies. Uh, but you need to be responsible. You need to t- take responsibility for the danger in which you are putting yourself and um, the animals.
1: I'd like to go back to uh, to the beginnings of the uh, of, of the park. It's, this is America's oldest uh, park, right? So, the, the events leading up to the factors leading up to March first, 1872, when President Grant signs the uh, signs the the act. Tell me a little bit about that. There, there were some expeditions that went out in the, the late 1860s, early 1870s. That's right,
2: yeah. This was a place that was not early settled by um, European Americans arriving in the West. It was mostly left alone because it's very high and very cold in the winter. It's The Yellowstone Plateau is up around eight or 9,000 feet, and that's because there's a great volcano underneath pushing it up native peoples the uh, the bannock the shoshone the sheep eater and others had used the place um, in their uh, in their nomadic lifestyles over the centuries over the millennia uh, but had not settled there it was not their inclination to settle permanently in one place so finally 1869 70 71 there were three expeditions of white men who went in and saw yellowstone and what they saw were geysers and hot springs with multicolored uh, minerals and, and and what they didn't yet realize were bacteria growing in these places, great canyons like the canyon of the Yellowstone River, great waterfalls. And so in 1872, when the Yellowstone Park um, Bill passed Congress and was signed by General Grant, uh, we were creating a national park for the sake of spe- scenic splendors and not as a wildlife refuge. And part of the, the Counterintuitive and very interesting history of Yellowstone is the way our idea of Yellowstone has evolved over the decades, over the 144 years since Yellowstone Park was created. Our idea, I say somewhere that that this was from the beginning a big idea, but it's gotten bigger, and it was a good idea that has gotten much better as Yellowstone became more than a place for scenic spectacle and Yellowstone Park was eventually appreciated to be part of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem.
1: Economic factors entered in early, I think. I was interested to read in, in this yeah. issue of National Geographic that uh, one of the impetuses here was railroad, right? And they wanted to sell tickets, so, right. yeah. so build yeah. up a nice it's, place uh, to get out and see.
2: Right. It's easy to romanticize this, this event, but the reality was that one of the driving forces was that the Northern Pacific Railroad wanted a scenic splendor in the west so that as they built their rail line across the west they could make some money selling tickets for tour to tourists who wanted to come out and see this place selling uh, railway tickets and also selling hotel rooms to to visitors coming niagara falls which was the great scenic spectacle in the east had already been taken away from the public because the private land surrounding it had been bought up and sealed off so that you had to pay to see niagara falls and then Yellowstone was established, and although the, um, the Northern Pacific Railroad saw profit in this, the fact was that they supported um, creation of a public park so that, essentially, um, anyone could visit it, uh, and yet they still hoped to make some money from it.
1: So tell me more about, you set up, uh, the good example is Yosemite, which had become, I think, a state park at that point. Niagara yeah. Falls was the negative example. What, what happened at Niagara?
2: Uh, well, essentially, it was turned into a, kind of a carnival peep show. Um, great um, great board walls were put up so that you had to pay to get a look at Niagara. Uh, I've been to Niagara Falls myself recently, and it is a scenic spectacle, and, and now it's possible to see it with public access. But in those days, it wasn't. So Yellowstone was meant to be something other than that. In the meantime, as you say, there was Yosemite in California, and the great Yosemite Valley. Um, that had been... Um, a state park um, that the land had been federally held, but it was given to the state, so that California could create a state park out of Yosemite that happened before Yellowstone but then Yosemite later became a national park as part of the U.S. national park system after Yosemite, after Yellowstone. So Yellowstone itself in 1872 was America's first and the world's first national park.
1: Yeah, the, the, I think that's important to note, the world's first national park. Uh, and in the Enabling Act, the, this you know famous sentence, this park should be a public park or pleasing ground for the benefit and enjoyment of the people. That That's fairly vague, and there's been debates over what that means ever since, right?
2: <laughs> We've been trying to figure out what that meant ever since, yes. Uh, and there's a, there's a tension there, um, because as we have appreciated Yellowstone more as a wildlife refuge, we realize that this is a great opportunity for um, the public to benefit and to be pleased visiting this place and seeing wildlife as well as uh, canyons and waterfalls, and yet um uh, it's, it's a little bit tricky to figure out how you manage a place for dangerous wild animals in abundance and you let people come and visit them. So there's always been that, that tension. I call it in this piece the paradox of the cultivated wild. It's paradoxical because we want the place to be wild, and yet we want it to be wild on our terms so that we can tour through it and, and, uh, and enjoy it and see it uh, in, in relative comfort and in safety. Paradoxical,
1: yeah, yeah. This here's a quote. Um, this is David Quammen in, in the latest edition, the May edition of National Geographic. It's more than just a park. It's a place where more than 140 years ago people began to negotiate a peace treaty with the wild. That negotiation continues today with growing urgency at Yellowstone and all over the the, the planet. How is that idea of wild
2: changed? Well, as I said, um, uh, it wasn't originally envisioned envisaged as a uh, nature reserve as a place to protect wildlife it was for scenic spectacle but then in the 1920s ideas started to change there was a very important and very wonderful superintendent of yellowstone that's the boss of yellowstone park named horace albright who ran the park from 1919 to 1929 horace albright was a young fellow from california who had been second in command to stephen mather the first director of the national park service National Park Service was founded in 1916, long after the first parks had been founded, but we needed a professional organization to run those parks. So Mather, with help from Albright, set up the National Park Service. Albright became um, first superintendent in 1919, and Albright had this idea that um, for the public to appreciate their national parks, notably Yellowstone, wildlife... um, Spectacle would have to attract them. And for wildlife to be a spectacle, it needed to be abundant and tame. So Horace Albright set, up, set out to, to make the wildlife of, of Yellowstone abundant and tame. And yet it wasn't all wildlife. There was a sense of good animals versus bad animals. The good animals were the ones that were gentle and that people liked and, and enjoyed watching, like elk and deer. And bison, not that bison are gentle, but they're, they're not predators. And the bad animals were any animals that tended to reduce the population of the good animals by eating them. So wolves were bad. Mountain lions were bad. Coyotes were bad. Uh, bears were in sort of an in-between zone because they're omnivores. They eat meat, but they eat a lot of other things, too. And so Albright led the trend of feeding bears, including grizzly bears, on handouts from cars, from picnic tables, from the great dumps near the Yellowstone hotels. So for 40 or 50 years, the grizzlies of Yellowstone got used to f- eating handouts from humans and human garbage. And uh, and then more ecological ideas began to come in, and that, that sort of turns the page to a new chapter of, of how we understand the wild in Yellowstone
1: it's uh it, i think it is the predators that capture our imagination doesn't it and stir the most controversy
2: absolutely they stir the most controversy and i think you're right that they capture our imaginations uh bears mountain lions wolves as i said um uh and um, and they are problematic um or um the relationship between us and them is problematic it's problematic for them as much as it is for us um, and yet, people still put at the top of their wish list when they come to Yellowstone the possibility of seeing a grizzly bear. That's number one.
1: Yeah, that's uh, and and I, I I don't know. I guess it's the is it the danger? I don't know why why it captures our imagination.
2: Well, um, it's partly that. It's partly this is this is just the the biggest, most ferocious, um, most magnificent land animal on the North American continent. Uh, Ursus arctos, the, the 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 brown bear of North America, which we know as the grizzly bear, uh, and anybody who has seen um, a grizzly bear in the wild, even through um, the windshield of their car, let alone on foot, um, let alone in the backcountry on foot, uh, I think has a sense that there is just something extraordinary. About this animal, it's up there. I, I, I wrote a whole book about big predators at, oh, about ten, twelve years ago, uh, called "Monster of God." And I wrote about this particular uh, magnificence of these these predators that are big enough, fierce enough, um, and solitary enough, such that a single individual sometimes kills and eats a human. Not often, not uh, except in the in the most unfortunate of circumstances. But still, it happens the bengal tiger, um, the brown bear in um, in north america or around the world, the saltwater crocodile in australia, these things are in a category all to themselves.
1: By the way, I, I just kind of wondered this is parenthetical um, if I'm going to yellowstone and I'm going to get 200 yards off the off the beaten path unlike a lot of people who you know kind of view you things through that plexiglass uh, am I okay with bear spray? Is that is that going to be enough? Am I all right?
2: Well, you should take. You should start with bear spray. You should take a few precautions. Um, it's better if there are three or four of you than if you're alone. It's better if you're making noise than if you're moving quietly through, say, through through brush. Um, you want to be careful about food smells. If you go backpacking um, while you're back there, um, you want to you want to eat things that don't smell very much and. and Make sure you store your food a good distance from your tent. Uh, it's not for everybody, and there are risks, and, and people can have unfortunate experiences even if they do everything right. Uh, there's nothing quite like it. As I said, um, in other parts of the world, you know, <laughs> they don't let people take that particular risk. But if people take the risk, then they they need to take the responsibility too.
1: By the way, there's a, a picture of a gentleman in, in this edition of National Geographic who was attacked by—survived a bear attack— uh, he doesn't blame this particular south. She was just, uh, you know, protecting her young.
2: That's right. Yes, and and some of the I know other people um, who have been attacked and wounded by grizzly bears. Some very few of them, like the man you're mentioning, um, emerge from it um, chastened, um, philosophical, um, forgiving, and um, and although they've been torn apart physically, they've been they've been made whole. In a very profound way, I think, by um, by an interaction with the bear that they have been lucky enough to survive.
1: If you just joined us, we are talking with David Quammen. He is an award-winning writer. He is a frequent contributor to National Geographic. The sole author of a the special single-topic May 2016 issue. It's on the Yellowstone National Park and Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem. David Quammen has lived in the Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem for some 30 years, um, and uh, very interesting issue. We're talking about this on the program today. Let's take a, a quick We'll take a quick break. Um, and before we go, I want to uh, give you a bit of that experience. I made a brief reference to it just a moment ago. Uh, Rancher Nick Patrick uh, shares the story of the grizzly attack. He survived near his Cody, Wyoming home. You can find uh, this at natgeo.com slash Yellowstone. Let's uh, hear a bit of uh, Nick Patrick's experience here.
0: Well, June 20th, I heard my dog in a terrible fight, just literally screaming. And without thinking, I rushed around the corner. 25 yards away was a sow with two little cubs. Within two and a half seconds, she was on me. I swung at her with a shovel and hit her, but it didn't dissuade her, and she reached up and, and basically removed the the center of my face. And then we went down on the ground and she grabbed my left knee and drugged me about 20 feet. She just uh, worked me over for, it seemed like long enough, but it was probably like 20 or 30 seconds. And then she took off. Well, I was really disappointed that uh, <clears throat> I had uh, set this up, you know, because it was totally on me. I, I should have read the signs. I should have, you know, instead of just rushing into it. it. Really wasn't the bear's fault. She wasn't doing anything but what any good mother would do, so.
1: That's rancher Nick Patrick, uh, who lives uh, near Cody, Wyoming, um, talking about uh, his experience surviving a grizzly attack. You can find that interview and in, in other uh, uh, videos at natgeo.com slash Yellowstone. We're talking with David Quammen. The entire May 2016 issue of National Geographic is about Yellowstone and the Yellowstone, the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. We'll have more uh, following a break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today, and uh, we invite you to join this conversation. Hope that you will. Uh, to upraccess@gmail.com. at gmail.com, at gmail.com email once again upraccess at gmail.com and we have here an email from alec Uh, he says with the recent study about how rapidly species are going extinct it seems unlikely that truly wild places will have any use to our descendants especially when destruction of the environment seems to have become a core facet of half of americans ideology that's from Alec. You can uh, email us with your comment uh, as well. Upraxis at gmail.com. More with David Kwaman following this break.
3: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah State University Institute of Government and Politics, where Old Maine meets Capitol Hill. More information available at usu.edu slash IOGP. Voters in Cache County are posting ballots through the Postal Service during a mail-in only process this election season. Before posting your ballot, tune in to Utah Public Radio between now and Tuesday to learn more about issues. And then Tuesday night, NPR and UPR will bring you statewide and national results. Election coverage 2016 on Utah Public Radio.
0: Thank you for listening to this Encore presentation of Access Utah. Unfortunately, we cannot take your calls right now, but you can still participate in this conversation by emailing us at upraccess at
1: We're back with uh, David Quammen. Um, he uh, writes about Yellowstone National Park. It's uh, the world's first national park. And uh, all through this year, National Geographic is uh, taking a look at the national parks uh, on the centennial, of course, the park system. Um, and this entire May 2016 issue is devoted to Yellowstone uh, National Park. I want to talk a bit about, uh, a bit, David Quammen, about the, I guess, I think it's increasing, you might call it tensions, potential interactions, and in, in, in how humans and, and the wildlife in Yellowstone are impacting each other. Uh, human population keeps growing. Um, the, you know, the buildup of uh, towns around the periphery of the Yellowstone Greater Yellowstone ecosystem. In this issue, there is a, there's a picture of a, a bear uh, captured on a on a you know a camera uh, trap and next to a house. There's a picture of a bison crossing a bridge on Highway 89 in Gardner, Montana. Um, and then I a photo of a hunter from Australia who's just outside the park boundary. He's uh, He is uh, hunting elk. Um, this illustrates the, the fact that uh, these are arbitrary boundaries, aren't they, the National Park?
2: Absolutely, yes. We drew a rectangle around 2 million acres of land back in 1872, and we called that Yellowstone Park. But that rectangle is invisible on the ground. Bears don't see it. Bison don't see it. Um, humans don't see it. Um, and yet... Um, The rules change drastically when you cross that boundary. Um, The the rules of hunting, the rules of what wildlife are allowed where, and uh, and because wildlife don't respect uh, human rules or human boundaries, there are these complications. The bison migrate out of yellowstone mostly to the north across the north boundary into the state of montana during the winter because they need to get down low and find grass that's not completely buried in snow to get away from the extreme cold temperatures and weather conditions of the yellowstone plateau they need to come down lower likewise the elk migrate down out of the park onto uh, onto public and private lands for their winter range uh, bears cross over the boundaries wolves cross over the boundaries Um, And so what's the takeaway lesson from that? Well, one of the takeaway lessons is that Yellowstone has to be an ecosystem. It can't just be a park. Um, And in order to have the wonders that we see in Yellowstone during the summer, the grizzly bears and the elk and the bison and the other wildlife, there has to be places where they can go in the winter. That means in many cases crossing boundaries and in some cases onto private land. Big cattle ranches, in particular, um, those cattle ranches, um, are, are an important factor in the, in the fate of the elk populations, uh, in particular, and the, and uh, because elk are an important food for grizzly bear, for the grizzly bear also, and lots of other aspects. So, one of the points I raise in the issue is that the fate of these big private ranches and the public land, the private lands generally of the Yellowstone ecosystem, is a very important part of of the dynamic and if those private lands are sold off and partitioned and subdivided for development and more and more suburban sprawl as more and more people decide they want to live in the yellowstone ecosystem then we'll lose those migrations and if we lose those migrations we will lose a lot of the lifeblood of not just the yellowstone ecosystem but yellowstone park also so there is this essential interconnectedness that we need to be aware of as we set public policy and as we deal with private landowners.
1: Some of these migrations are incredible. Uh, I think the, the elk migration, uh, it's its like the Serengeti.
2: Yes, and there are there are nine different elk populations. There's a wonderful young ecologist named Arthur Middleton, who's been um, collating um, data from earlier researchers and gathering data of his own on the elk migrations Um I spent uh, eight days with him and a photographer in the Yellowstone backcountry uh, just outside the southeast corner of the park, a very remote area known as the Thoroughfare, uh, named after Thoroughfare Creek there, headwaters of the Yellowstone River. And Arthur was uh, was gathering data on the migrations of the Cody herd in particular, the herd that comes from the Grey Bull River Basin over one range of mountains, over a high mountain pass, across the Shoshone, south fork of the Shoshone River, over another high pass of the Absaroka Mountains, and finally into the thoroughfare um, area. It does this twice a year, coming and going, travels more than 100 miles, thousands of elk going over mountain passes up 8,000 feet, places where the rock itself is worn down into a groove five feet deep by the passing of elk hooves over the centuries. And uh, Arthur and his, uh, his photographic partner, Joe Reese have, have documented that. There's some amazing photographs from Joe Reese of, of the Elk migration in this issue.
1: As you say, this uh, this uh, we talk here about the, this idea of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. It's something that there's some push back against, uh, but, but an idea that you know a lot of people are seeking to uh, to protect. It's a large swath of land.
2: It is absolutely. Yellowstone park itself is about 2.1 million acres, 2.2 maybe now, um, and the greater Yellowstone ecosystem is 10 times that size, about 22 million acres, uh, and that includes not just Yellowstone Park and Grand Teton National Park, but portions of five national forests, some Bureau of Land Management. Land, two wildlife refuges, a portion of the Wind River Indian Reservation, some state land, and also, as I've been saying, private lands. This, it's, a, it's all a great amoeba, um, uh, constituting, as I said, about 22 million acres there in the, uh, in the northwestern corner of Wyoming and spilling over into Montana and Idaho. Um, and uh, the tricky part about it is that people ask who's in charge of the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And the answer, as I say in the piece, is everybody and nobody. There are various federal jurisdictions. There are private landowners, uh, uh, and there are other interested parties. And it's very important for management decisions to be made um, cooperatively, syncretically, uh, uh, coherently, so that the, the ecosystem is managed as an ecosystem. That's one of the biggest challenges facing Yellowstone right now. Uh,
1: That's problematic, isn't it? Because there's so many constituencies, uh, I don't know how it can be managed coherently. Right.
2: There's there's turf jealousy, there's turf warfare, there's different um, interests on the part of the public. Some people, for instance, hate wolves. Other people love wolves. Some people, surprisingly enough, hate elk. They feel there are too many elk. Why? Because the elk come down and graze on their lands during the winter and take grass away from their cows. And a lot of other people love elk, those people who love simply to watch magnificent wildlife, and also the hunting community, hunting communities such as the one in Cody, Wyoming, um, where where elk are um, a great economic driver of a large um, hunting economy based out of Park County, Wyoming, and, and Cody, Wyoming. Um, so that's just that's just two examples of um of the 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 polarizing um uh, elements and issues in the ecosystem that um that have been fought out bitterly for years and decades and that really need to be approached i think in in a new way with uh, with c- collaborative and interactive decision making Easier said than done,
1: of course. Yeah, easier said than done. Um, if you just joined us, we're talking with David Quammen, award-winning writer, a frequent c- contributor to National Geographic magazine, and he's the sole writer in, uh sole author in this uh, new edition of National Geographic. It's devoted uh, solely to the world's first national park, Yellowstone. By the way, just to illustrate uh, the, this, the scope of, of the greater Yellowstone uh, ecosystem, this amoeba, this immense amoeba, uh, to to put this in context for people who don't know, so fairly close to our studios here in Logan, Montpelier, Idaho's just outside, uh, you know the, what we'd consider the greater uh, Yellowstone ecosystem, Soda Springs, Idaho, Idaho Falls. Uh, so it, it it is immense in in scope. Um, I want to uh, quote a, a gentleman, a rancher, just to c- sort of illustrate the the conflicts here. Um, this is in this issue of National Geographic. Photo of of him. It's Uh, gentleman standing in his ranch. He says, my great uh, Bill Hop or Bill Hoppy. I'm not sure how you pronounce his name. He says, my great grandfather was the first white man born in Montana territory. We've always lived in this area, even before there was a national park. We love this area. We love the park. It's really when they started calling it an ecosystem that all the problems began. People from all over the world having an opinion on how this area should be managed and how we should be ranching, hunting, and living our lives. People that never once had a grizzly at their front door when their wife walks out to go to work in the morning.
2: That's right. And um, and there's a lot of legitimacy. Bill Hoppy is a very um, controversial character, I should say. Um, uh, he's a, a bit of a polarizing figure himself. Um, he's a tough, curmudgeonly Montana rancher. Um, uh, but there was um, great resistance at the beginning of the idea of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. The idea began in the, the early 1980s when it started dawning on people that, uh, that Yellowstone Park needed more than just the land within Yellowstone Park to sustain its wildlife. Um, And some of the people from the federal agencies resisted even the terminology, greater Yellowstone ecosystem. Um, They preferred to say, well, greater Yellowstone area, suggesting that uh, they didn't want to acknowledge the interconnectedness of all these processes and wildlife populations. Um, there's less and less resistance to that as time goes on. But I think what Mr. Hoppe is t- is talking about there is the fact that um, um, some people think that, oh, well, it's nice to see grizzly bears and it's nice to see elk and there are no consequences to, to those animals living here. But in fact, those animals do spill out of the park. They spill onto private lands. And um, I've written about this problem in that earlier book that I mentioned, Monster of God. Um, big predators are inconvenient and magnificent and costly and it's the people who live at great distances who enjoy um, much of the benefit from knowing for instance that grizzly bears exist that tigers exist and the people who live close up on the landscape who pay most of the costs uh, suffer most of the inconvenience how do you adjudicate that well it's not easy but it it must include the fact uh... the recognition of the fact that people all over America do have a legitimate interest in Yellowstone National Park. Who does it belong to? It belongs to every every citizen of this country, and in some ways, it belongs to the world. But it certainly, literally, belongs to every citizen of this country. I spoke with one um, uh, very uh, crusty, hard-nosed, um, realistic uh, Wyoming uh, hunting guide that I spent time in the backcountry with. And I asked him at a certain point, well, who, who owns this, this big plot of land um, that you care about so much? And he said, well, we do. Who's we? The American public. I asked him, does that mean that the wolf hugger in New Jersey owns it as much as the hunting outfitter in Cody, Wyoming? And he said, absolutely. And that's something that, uh, that Mr. Hoppe needs to remember, too.
1: Mm-hmm. You say uh, in, in this issue of National Geographic that uh, this interconnectedness is not only part of the ecology, but it's part of the resource politics. And I wonder what you think the, the winning argument is for those who want to preserve the greater Yellowstone ecosystem.
2: Well, it's such an extraordinary thing that we have. Um, this 22 million acres of wild and mostly wild landscape um, containing grizzly bears and wolves, and the full complement of predator species and their prey and so many other species, all in this ecosystem at the heart of the American West, surrounded on all sides by um by modern America. Um, it exists nowhere else in this country that uh, at least in the lower forty eight that full complement of truly wild um, creatures and processes um, and uh, and therefore, it's I think it's a, uh, it's an extraordinary privilege, an extraordinary resource, an extraordinary teaching opportunity for our young people and future generations. Uh, how we live with the wild, if we succeed in living with the wild, is played out. And this takes me back sort of to the beginning of my piece that you quoted. How we how we live with Yellowstone. Um, answers the question of whether or not it is doable for us to to maintain wild nature um, in this park, uh, uh, in the 21st century, and in in this country, in the 21st century and beyond.
1: We're talking with David Quammen. Uh, He is the sole author of the latest edition of National Geographic magazine, the May edition. It is devoted to a single topic, Yellowstone, and the Yellowstone, uh, the greater Yellowstone uh, ecosystem. We're going to take a break, uh, and uh, going to break, we are uh, going to hear um, a bit of audio from another video found at natgeo.com Yellowstone. This is titled Bathe with the Bears, uh, a rare glimpse caught by hidden cameras of grizzlies and blackbirds cooling off in a remote Yellowstone pool. Let's hear a bit of this.
3: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah State University Institute of Government and Politics, where Old Maine meets Capitol Hill. More information available at usu.edu slash IOGP.
1: This is Management Minute by Professor Scott Hammond.
0: Are you wondering if depth or breadth is best for your career? Are technical skills more important than general management? Well, the answer is yes. 40 years of career research on knowledge workers shows that the vast majority of successful careers begin with solid technical skills. But eventually, if you want to be valued, you will need to let go of what made you successful and go broad. Going broad at the right time after a technical foundation is the formula for most successful careers.
1: The Management Minute is brought to you by our members and the USU John M. Huntsman School of Business One-Year Master of Business Administration, specializing in strategic business development and value creation, business analytics, and finance. Details at huntsman.usu.edu slash MBA.
0: Thank you for listening to this Encore presentation of Access Utah. Unfortunately, we cannot take your calls right now, but you can still participate in this conversation by emailing us at upraccess at gmail.com.
1: Back with David Quammen, our final segment here. David Quammen is award-winning author of uh, several books, um, including uh, David Quammen. I hadn't read your full biography previously. I suppose you... You're a, you're a Cincinnati kid, and then you came out west?
2: That's right. Yep, yep. I, I grew up in Cincinnati, came to Montana in 1973 after graduate school, and I've been here since then.
1: Uh, Yale and Oxford, so where you went to school, had, um, started started out, I guess, uh, a spy novel.
2: Well, I started out as a novelist. I wrote uh-huh. a couple of spy novels, but I started out, yeah, as a um, you've been <laughs> probing into my deep history, Tom. I, I have. And I, have. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I came out as a young novelist in 1973, and then I gradually turned into a nonfiction writer with a with a specialty in um, in the life sciences.
1: Now, what uh, what took you west?
2: Well, you mentioned Yale and Oxford. I, after those experiences, getting a very good education, I wanted to get as far away as I could from ivy-covered walls. Uh-huh. Uh, so I came to Montana and said, "Okay, now I'm going to be a starving young writer." and I, <laughs> I, I, although I had published one book, I still couldn't make a living. So I paid my dues the way young writers do, tending bar, waiting tables, working as a fishing guide, and and then gradually uh, figuring out how to make a living as a as a magazine journalist and uh, an author of nonfiction books.
1: And uh, the, those uh, books include uh, some uh, some some very good books, uh, Monster of God, which we've made reference to several times, Song of the Dodo, The Reluctant Mr. Darwin, Spillover, and David Quammen is uh, author of uh, the articles in uh, this National Geographic on Yellowstone. Yeah, you
2: know, the Spillover book, uh, was, um, it was interesting because some of that was going on while I was doing this National Geographic piece. Spillover is about emerging diseases that come from animals, including such as Ebola, and I was in the midst of researching this Yellowstone special project for National Geographic. And then the the, the horrible Ebola outbreak of West Africa occurred. And um, and I, I, I was called on to be one of the talking heads, people who had written about Ebola and knew something about it. And I was so I was on TV and on the radio. And there were some days when I would spend two-thirds of the day in Yellowstone listening to people talk about grizzly bear diets. And then I would come... Streaking back to Bozeman to go into a solitary TV studio and answer questions from uh, Anderson Cooper about Ebola on the on his evening program. Wow, that's a little bizarre.
1: Yeah, that is bizarre. Uh, I'd like to get back to Yellowstone and and the appeal. I think the appeal of wild, and we've talked about how the idea of wild and how we want to experience wild has changed over time. Here's a quote: You quote Doug Smith, Yellowstone wolf biologist. He says, this is what our world is trying to do away with. Right Right here, that look. We want to keep that look. That's what Yellowstone Park is all about. I think he's talking about a wolf.
2: He was talking about a wolf. We were standing on the backside of Sepulchre Mountain in Yellowstone in the middle of, um, uh, I think it was December, a couple years ago, and we had just um, traveled in by helicopter, and these wolves had been tranquilized, dart, uh, tranquilized, darted, after having been netted, and they were being processed. Their health checked, their uh, their weight checked, some DNA taken, and radio collars put on them, and um, and he lifted up the head of one of them and and he spoke those words to me. That's wild. That's what this place is all about. Uh, and uh, and my my fingers were just uh, functional enough in the cold to scribble that quotation down.
1: Yeah, what is it about that look? Because I think he's not the only one who would who would say that.
2: Well, um, wolves have amazing, beautiful eyes. They're sort of um, coppery-brown uh, eyes that are that are lit with flecks of yellow, and, uh, and and they're just really gorgeous animals, especially close up. He also said, here, look at these teeth. Look at these carnassials. Forget about the great big um, uh, uh, incisors on the canine teeth in the front. He was showing me the teeth on the sides that they use for cutting meat, slicing meat. And he said, that's what it's all about. If you have a meteor like the wolf, those carnassial teeth are how they make their living. Uh, he said, you, you, you scarcely should dare to put your fingers in there, uh, even when they're tranquilized. Although that was precisely what he was doing himself with his fingers as he showed me this wolf.
1: <laughs> um, I wonder if you tell me just a little bit about your, uh, your flight. You, you went up with the, uh, uh, a scientist, Roger Stradley. Um, yes,
2: early on, early on in the research, I got an, a, a literal overview of Yellowstone. Um, Doug Smith, the wolf biologist, had recommended that I seek this guy out. He's a great bush pilot based out of an airport in Belgrade, Montana, and uh, he flies an old uh, 1956 Piper Super Cub, um, and it's a, it's a plane with a long wing and a relatively small engine that, that flies low and slowly perfect for observing wildlife. So the biologists tend to fly with Roger Stradley, and, and I did a, uh, a four-hour overflight of the park with Roger. Um, he's, he was 76 at the time, and he'd been flying for 62 years in the mountains. And he pointed out to me... Um, different parts of the park as we went over them. He said, look at that bear down there. Uh, That bear is probably eating uh, moral mushrooms. That's a great area for mushrooms because of the fires. Um, Over here, we're in the Lamar Valley. You see that wolf? There's a den under that tree. Uh, Eventually, we flew up the west side of the park, and on the top of a mountain, we looked down, and we saw another great grizzly bear um, alone in a meadowy place at about 8,000 feet overlooking the Gallatin River, eating yellow flowers. Um, <laughs> we circled twice to confirm what we thought we had seen, and yes, it was, it was not digging for ants or grubs. It was not digging for roots. It was eating the yellow flowers of balsam roots. So that was the last image from that flight. It was a, an, a, a huge grizzly bear on the top of a mountain overlooking <laughs> the Gallatin River, all alone, eating flowers.
1: But a, a true omnivore, yeah,
2: absolutely, a true omnivore, yeah.
1: Uh, Yellowstone, especially the Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem, uh, just a tremendous place. Uh, one of the facts you bring out in this issue, is the thoroughfare, which you uh, made reference to earlier, the most remote place in the Lower Forty Eight. Yellowstone River, right. I think, the longest yep. river in the Lower Forty Eight. Uh,
2: Yellowstone is the longest undammed river in the uh, in the Lower Forty Eight, um, and the thoroughfare, Thoroughfare Creek is, is one of the headwaters, and you go up there. This is outside the southeastern corner of Yellowstone Park. It's in the Bridger-Teton Wilderness area. I went in there with Arthur Middleton and the photographer Joe Reese, and the, and that um, hunting guide I mentioned, whose name is West Livingston. The four of us spent about eight days together in the thoroughfare um, on horseback, as as Arthur and Joe tracked uh, the elk migration, and. Uh, and i also flew over that area with with roger stradley it felt like riding a great kite as we flew up the upper yellowstone and thoroughfare creek low uh, and slowly um and then i got back i got a chance to get back in there on horseback with these three other fellows and, um, it was a great privilege um, and helped me understand how water and grass are the first drivers of the entire interactive yellowstone ecosystem The water feeds the grass. The grass feed the elk. The elk feed the grizzlies, and so on. It goes.
1: And uh, this area is one of the last relatively unspoiled temperate ecosystems on Earth. Uh, You're right. So it offers a unique opportunity for scientists to, to study all sorts of things.
2: That is. True, and there's a lot of important science going on in Yellowstone, both geological science, scientists like Bob Smith of the University of Utah studying um, the Yellowstone hotpot or the Yellowstone hotspot for the last uh, 60 years in uh, the amazing dynamics of, of the Yellowstone uh, volcano, and scientists like Doug Smith and bear biologist Carrie Gunther and Arthur Middleton Studying the various species and uh, and the processes that interconnect the species, processes like migration, predation, competition, parasitism—all those things that make an ecosystem what it is.
1: Just come down to the last several minutes of the, of the conversation here. By the way, we're talking with D- uh, David Quammen, and he writes in the latest edition of National Geographic, the May edition. It's all on Yellowstone. Um, so here's a quote from. Ray Rasker of Headwaters Economics, he says, people want to live and recreate next to uh, spectacular, largely unspoiled landscapes. Talking about economic uh, transition in the area, uh, the areas surrounding the Greater Yellowstone e- ecosystem, Rasker goes on to say, the thing we need to figure out is how to deal with an unprecedented wave of newcomers and not turn Greater Yellowstone into the places they fled from. And that's that's a quandary you see, I think, all over the West.
2: That's right, and Ray Rasker and his organization, Headwaters Economics, um, have been enormously valuable in in tracking Mm. these trends and getting numbers and getting metrics on the changes that are coming. I I can't quote to you from memory how the population, the human population of the greater Yellowstone uh, ecosystem has grown over the last 30 years, but the growth has been prodigious, not just in people coming to visit Yellowstone Park during the summer, but people coming to the greater Yellowstone ecosystem to live. And the danger, as Ray says, is that they will they will love the place to death, and they will transform it into something that looks no longer like the western wild, but a little bit more like the places they've come from. Um, we all come from somewhere. I told you already that I was a, an immigrant to Montana back in 73, uh, so I don't think anybody should be righteous about that, whether they were born here or not. Um, but we should be aware that we can't all own a piece of the wild if we want it to be wild. Uh, I I have always uh, honored the, um, uh, the slogan, if you love the landscape, live in town. Not everybody can buy 250 or 300 acres of wild landscape in the Yellowstone ecosystem, put up a cabin, uh, and uh, cut a road, um, and still expect to have... Uh, wild Yellowstone around them. That's that's what's changing this place as as much as any other single factor.
1: David Quammen is an award-winning National Geographic writer, author of uh, several books. He's the sole author of a special single-topic May 2016 issue uh, of National Geographic on Yellowstone National Park and the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. David Quammen, a pleasure. Thank you so much.
2: Tom, I really enjoyed talking with you. Thanks so much for your interest.
1: Thank you. Thanks to David Quammen thanks uh, to you for listening uh, today.
3: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah State University Institute of Government and Politics, where Old Maine meets Capitol Hill. More information available at usu.edu slash iogp. I'm Carrie Bringhurst, News Director for Utah Public Radio. Our news team is in the process of preparing election night coverage for Tuesday. Reporters Evan Hall, Amy Kovate, Justin Prather, and Esther Ratti will be on hand here and at party headquarters in Salt Lake City on November 8th to bring you election night results. Election night coverage here on Utah Public Radio.
2: Do you ever have those little voices in your head? That little guy whispering, I don't know if you can do this. Is what they say about us true? They don't think you can do it. Whose voices are they? That's not
1: me. That's not myself.
2: Do they hurt us or help us? They're kind of guiding voices.
0: He would remind her to do more positive things.
2: Can they save our lives? Porky, are you there? Dad said, I can hear you. I can hear you. you. Inner Voices on the next Radio Lab. Join us Tuesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio.
1: I'm Robin Young. Think this year was rough? The election of 1884 was really nasty, but poet Walt Whitman celebrated the power of Election Day.
2: The heart of it, not in the chosen. The act itself, the main. The quadrennial choosing.
3: We'll speak with Robert Pinsky about Whitman's Election Day, November 1884.
1: Next time, here and now.
3: Join us this morning at 11
2: on Utah Public Radio.
1: to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org.